Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. I... Like many of you, have a collection of vices in life. One of them is Kickstarter. I've spent a couple thousand dollars on Kickstarter projects over the last few years. There is something that appeals to me about the survival of the fittest consumerism of Kickstarter. If your idea doesn't attract the interest, and more importantly, money, of enough people, then your idea is probably a bad one. Backing creative projects and receiving updates on something that might turn out to be fantastic is also appealing to me. And typically, my pledges don't exceed about 50 bucks. For the projects that go belly up, pear-shaped, or sideways, I'm not going to starve over it. However, not everyone feels that way about the failure of a project they've backed. If you'd like to hear a horror story of sorts from Kickstarter, look around for a write-up of The Coolest Cooler. I didn't back the project, but I did report at least one Kickstarter user for publicly posting a death threat to the owner of the project over a cooler. Yes, that's an insulated box that holds your beer, and the disaster of the coolest cooler project brought at least one person to issue a threat of harm to life and limb over the delay of the creation of said cooler. One of the projects that just delivered that is up Tales to Terrify's Dark Alley is Ghost Island. It's the first half of a series of graphic novels. The creators have billed it as Jurassic Park, but with ghosts instead of dinosaurs. Personally, I'd have likened it a bit more to the 2001 remake 13 Ghosts. I've linked to it in the show notes, and it may be worth your while. Give it a look. Let's hear some stories. T.R. North was born and raised in Florida and has never been featured in a News of the Weird column run in another state. Other works of short fiction can be found in Metaphoresis, Persistent Visions, and Pseudopod. Follow T.R. North at North on the Gulf on Twitter for news. Link will be in the show notes. Children of the Night, lend me your ears for T.R. North's Real People, a Tales to Terrify original. Greg watches the images flicker on the screen. The guy in the red shirt blows his line again. The woman in the flower print dress looks off to the side, breaking scene, her lips and eyes tight with irritation. Greg doesn't really blame her. This is the tenth take. How bad? Anna asks, coming up behind him. She leans too close one hand on the back of his chair and the other on the soundboard. She thinks of herself as the office mom, he's pretty sure, 
but if he turns to look at her at this angle, he'll have to work not to glance down her blouse. It doesn't help that this close, her perfume is like a live thing, teasing and clinging and lingering on him after she leaves the room. Greg does not think of her as an office mom. Ugh, brutal, he says, not turning. I know this is concept, but do we have to use real people? They're already skirting with what they can call real, and he knows it. The testimonials are real, but the nervous people on the set parroting them back for the camera didn't write them. Their cast is just the most telegenic of the cattle call car owners who filled out their warranty cards and showed up for the chance to be on TV. It doesn't technically count as acting. They're repeating reviews at the camera until they get it right in exchange for a few hundred bucks. And they did buy the cars after all. It's what marketing wants, Anna says. Her arm brushes his back when she pushes a strand of bleach blonde hair behind her ear. Until we hear otherwise, it's what marketing gets. Greg's eyes stray to the bright red button in the upper right of the soundboard. The permanent marker rune drawn on it needs to be redone. Uh, it'd be easier to just use actors, though. He almost says real actors, but stops himself in time. Anna gets squirrely whenever she hears that phrase like she thinks it might be able to conjure them right out of the screen. It's theater nonsense. It can't happen. Actors don't exist outside that two-dimensional space of sound and light. But she signs his paychecks, and it's not like humoring her hurts anything. Besides, he doesn't like to upset her. I know, but verisimilitude is hot right now. <sighs> Last year's It Girl barely looked human. People got spooked. Nobody wants to buy a car from someone who smiles too wide and seems to be watching back at you from the TV set. She smiles wryly, her distorted reflection winking from the screen in front of him like a stale nightmare. Especially if you're buying the model with a TV in it. Greg shivers. Edwina Blank with her two sharp cheekbones and her two red lips and her two thin frame, had looked a little too close to a real trickster god for the viewing public. People started seeing her in their dreams, or at least claiming to, and the response of the collective psyche had been to pull the covers over their heads and stop watching. It had gone off the rails in short order, the hysteria supercharging her into something even worse, harder to control. The FCC had to step in. Greg cues up the next take, the one where Redshirt finally nails it, but then Sheepsuit sneezes, and Flower Dress gamely pretends it didn't happen. Real people, not actors. Humans, not shadows called into being by the desires and needs and neuroses of five billion people tuning in from all over the globe. Mortals, not monsters. It should have been comforting. Humans at least could be packed off, sent home for the day, fired, tracked. Nobody really knew what actors got up to once the film stopped running. Reels got dug out of forgotten vaults every so often, with the idols of a different era winking and strutting on the celluloid as sharp and hungry as ever. 
Greg lets himself shiver again, the same as he did when he read about plague victims getting dug out of centuries-old graves in the Siberian permafrost. Sometimes it was better to let things rot in peace. There is a thrill in it, though, and he knows he wouldn't be working in this industry if it didn't get his blood pumping. Hannah straightens, finally, and puts her hand on her chin. I'll talk to the script people. There's probably something they can come up with that will work. Most of the bullpen writers are kids who cut their teeth on channeling everything just so, herding the ephemeral, id-born chimeras on the screen into something approaching narrative and coaxing reliable characterization out of them. They don't know what they're doing with people who will more or less do as they're told. They certainly don't know how to handle people who can leave the set just step over the runes and the rings and leave if they get cranky or hungry or bored. The older writers aren't much better, for all that they came up with when the most popular actors were docile, happy-go-lucky things, goofy and charming and bland and still effortlessly charismatic. The ones the populace is manufacturing today border on malicious and aren't nearly as easy to control the product of a bad economy and enough existential dread to drown a continent. There's good money to be made, especially in horror and erotic thrillers, but that doesn't help much when script and editing don't have the chops for it. Greg himself is a little unsure of how to get a decent performance out of flesh-and-blood people. The digital demons can occasionally be bribed into changing themselves even after the fact for a live edit. He's never been able to swing it, but he knows it can be done. He'd almost be tempted to try it now, with real people on screen instead of actors, but there's a heavy, permanent quality to them. If actors are clay, flower dress and pink tank top and red shirt are poured concrete. He wonders if they could get a middle manager from a big box store to consult on getting their real customers reading real reviews to act perky on cue. He's always suspected there's some variety of dark magic to retail, the way some employees could sublimate into blank-eyed marionettes with too many teeth the second they clipped on the name tags. Hmm. Bring back the teleprompter? He suggests instead. Oh god, a teleprompter? Anna laughs. I haven't seen anyone use one of those since my days in cable news. Well, I guess it's worth a shot. She slaps him gently on the back and shows herself out of the editing booth, still chuckling. On the screen, her reflection is sneering, running fingertips slowly over the buttons on its blouse, tossing its hair. Greg swallows and hits play. That was T.R. North's Real People, a Tales to Terrify original, as read by Joe Samarco. Joe Samarco is U.S. born. He has a passion for audio engineering and voiceover work, and has since he was a young child. His father was a DJ and always encouraged his growth in the field. 
He hopes to make a professional career out of voiceover work in the animation or video game industry. To date, he has voiced over 15 different short stories on Tales to Terrify and hopes to do many more. For any who are interested in reaching out to him, he is on LinkedIn and Facebook and will happily respond to any requests or messages. Thank you, Joe. Our second story of the night comes to us from Matthew Kressel. Matthew Kressel is a multiple Nebula Award and World Fantasy Award finalist. His first novel, King of Shards, was hailed as majestic, resonant, reality-twisting madness from NPR Books. His short fiction has or will soon appear in Clark's World, Lightspeed, Tor.com, Nightmare, Apex Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Interzone, Electric Velocipede, and the anthologies Mad Hatters and March Hares, Cyberworld, Naked City, After, The People of the Book, as well as many other places. His work has been translated into Czech, Polish, French, Russian, Chinese, and Romanian. From 2003 to 2010, he read Senses 5 Press, which published Sybil's Garage, an acclaimed speculative fiction magazine, and Paper Cities, which went on to win the World Fantasy Award in 2009. His is currently the co-host of the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series in Manhattan, alongside Ellen Datlow, and he is the longtime member of the Altered Fluid Writers Group. By trade, he is a full-stack software developer, and he developed the Moksha Submission System, which is in use by many of the largest science fiction markets today. You can find him online at www.matthewkressel.net, where he blogs about writing, technology, environmentalism, and more. Or you can find him on Twitter at Matt Kressel. Links will be in the show notes. Listen with me to Matthew Kressel's The Words That Maketh Murder, a Tales to Terrify original. understand me, Kimmy? He says to me. All is futile. All is empty. So why do you persist in playing this game? He speaks with the voice of a ten-year-old boy, but I know he's much older. And though I've never learned his name, I've known who he is from the beginning. He hides in the shadows of this place that is not a place, lurking beyond the flickering light of the black candle in the center. I drift near the flame as if I'm the last bit of matter in an empty universe, left to swirl around a dying sun. The candle floats inside a glass cylinder of stagnant water, 
and orange orchids, like some centerpiece of a bleak wedding. It's morbidly beautiful. He's chosen it just for me. I stay, I say, because what you offer is far worse. He says nothing, but even when he's silent, I know he's there, circling around me in the dark, like the sweeping second hand of a clock. He has all the time in the world. He has all time. Eventually, he says, I offer peace. Peace from your torment. How is that worse? I don't have an answer. I know I just have to say the word and he'll snuff the candle. All of this will end. So why does that terrify me so much? I'd come to Ridgewood after I separated from Derek, my husband of 15 years, and moved to a small apartment on the second floor. My windows overlooked a paved yard, a tall concrete wall, and a razor-wire fence that guarded the Fresh Pond Road bus depot and Metropolitan Avenue train yards from would-be trespassers. I fell asleep each night to recordings, imploring me to stand clear of the closing doors, please, as conductors tested their voice circuits and I'd wake to the sounds of coughing buses and shrill reverse beeping as they departed for morning commutes. From my bedroom window, the driver's heads and uniformed shoulders were just barely visible above the wall as they boarded metro buses, and in the pre-dawn light, as I struggled to stay asleep, their voices assaulted my dreams. For the first few weeks, these sounds distressed me, but by the end of the month, like the background ticking of a clock that fades to nothing, the sounds drifted away. That's when I began to hear other sounds. Things crashed, enormous, heavy things. They shook my apartment and knocked newly hung pictures from the walls. At first I thought it was thunder. But the crashes faded too quickly, and came even when the sky was clear. I thought perhaps I was hearing buses dropped hard from a lift, or panels from dissected subway cars falling to the ground. Sounds, in other words, of people doing their jobs poorly. But the announcements changed my mind. They'd come at all times of day an over-modulated and tinny voice booming from a loudspeaker. I wrote down the things they said. Dolores module should not find entry here. Members of Alpha Team, check your dreams. I have not, nor will I ever, go into that dark place. When the time comes, Mordecai, will you be ready? More than half of them were in languages I didn't understand, though I caught snatches of the little German, Greek, Chinese, and Arabic I knew. Once, 
As we both stood smoking in front of our building, I asked my landlord, Paul, who lived upstairs from me, if he'd ever heard these odd sounds. It's just the depot, he said to me in his thick Brooklynese. I know, but do you ever hear... I paused to find the right words. I didn't know Paul well and wanted to make a good impression. Odd announcements? He took a drag and looked askance at me, as if glimpsing me for the first time. It's just MTA working, he said. But a woman got hit today. Did you hear? Hit? At the subway entrance on Fresh Pond Road, right where the buses pull out. A mother of three got clobbered by the B-52 bus. She's in a coma. Might die. Oh, God, that's awful. That place has been a goddamn death trap for years. It's coist. Paul said this to me, then stomped out his cigarette to retreat inside. That night, at 3.19 a.m., an announcement woke me from a dreamless sleep. When you see the ninth heart open, it means they've chosen you. I peered through my blinds into the yards. Parked trains slept silent and still under the sickly yellow glow of goose-necked lamps, a vision better suited for a Nazi prison camp than a metro transit system. A stray cat, sitting on the stone wall, peered up at me, eyes aglow, before it leapt down to the ground and vanished into shadow. This is great, Kimmy, Norm says to me as he leans over my desk to scan the numbers on my screen. It's 1997, and I'm fresh out of college, an awkward, shy, and nerdy girl who excels at writing code, who dreams of programming satellites and an important job at NASA. Norm's badge, four stars indicating his top-secret clearance, dangles from his breast pocket as it brushes my ear. The colonels are going to love this, he says, his breath reeking of coffee. And more than anything else, this is what I'll remember most about him. My heart warms at Norm's words. I've spent months on this project, and I allow myself a moment of pride. And Norm's right. I'll go far here at Northrop. Not only will the colonels love my simulation, my work will open the door to a multi-billion dollar contract funded by the tax-paying citizens of the good old U.S. of A., surreptitiously via the enormous Black Ops budget. In five years, I'll be chief architect of the SUAV program. Situational, unmanned, aerial vehicles and environments. A fancy military term for autonomous killer drones. How many was it in total? The boy asks. And just like that, I'm back in this place that is no place at all. The black candle floating in the clear cylinder. The morbidly beautiful centerpiece burns a few fingers taller. My only reference in this place sans reference. How many what? 
I say, and my voice fades into infinite space. You know what I'm asking, he says, creeping around me. I turn towards his voice, but there is only darkness, yet I sense his presence intimately. He smells of sweat and tea and musk. His footsteps are soft, as if he walks on ancient loam, and his unseen energy sprays me like the salty mist of frigid seas. I didn't have access to those numbers, I say, shivering. But you had enough data to estimate. Yes. And you kept those estimates in one of your notebooks, one you never showed to Derek, one you never showed to anyone. It was for me and me alone. Why? I don't answer him. I don't have to answer. So, he says, how many was it? I don't know. Oh, but you do, Kimmy. You do. We're home, my former home, in Farmingdale, Long Island. A split-level ranch with room enough for children Derek and I will never have. It's late, and Derek's gone to bed. But I can't sleep. I'm alone in the kitchen drinking chamomile, the only light coming from the orange street lamp shining through the window. My notebook lies open on the table, and the following words are written on the page. June. 2004 Wana, Zaziristan 8, 5 Damadola 24, 18 Salamatkele, Samazola 30, 27 Tapi, Miransha 6, 2 Chenagai Bahar, eighty, sixty-five. Each line a city, the number of dead, and the estimated civilian casualties. This is page twenty-one, and all prior pages are full. In two years, I'll fill this notebook and begin another. In four years. When I'm investigated for espionage and forced to take a polygraph, I'll burn all my notebooks in the yard, while Derek surreptitiously watches from the bedroom window. He'll later testify he's seen me do this, and other erratic things, like pace the house late at night and talk to a person who isn't there. But that was never true. I was am, will be, speaking to the boy. He has always been here listening. He will always be here until I choose to snuff the candle. You can't tell me even a little. We're in a Turkish restaurant, and Derek sits across from me, his napkin ever so neatly tucked into the collar of his shirt. Always the fastidious one to my hurricane. Neither of us have taken a bite, and our untouched lamb grows cold. 
You know I can't talk about my work, I say, especially not in public. So when we get home? I can't, Derek. You could if you wanted to. You could tell me so many things if you wanted to. He peers over his glasses at me, his eyes older and wearier than I remember. What happened to NASA? He says. What do you mean? It used to be all you'd talk about. Satellites and the space program and building colonies on the moon and Mars. Last night I saw a bunch of your astronomy books in the trash. I was making room on the bookshelf. For what? You haven't bought a book in years. You used to always have your nose buried in one, even on dates. Do you remember that? He looks wistfully away, then grimaces as if he's swallowed something foul. Now you just come home each night and fall asleep on the couch. I'm exhausted after work. Doing something you won't ever open up to me about. I know it's eating you alive. I can see it. So why can't you just let me in? I'm sorry, Derek. I really, really am. No, he says. I don't think you are. He takes the napkin from his neck, neatly folds it and places it on the table. I have to go to the bathroom, he says. Then he gets up and doesn't return for twenty minutes. The waitress comes to see if everything's all right, and I tell her we'll take our dinners to go. Back home, Derek goes straight to bed. But I don't sleep. I came to you that night, the boy says, and I'm flung back into the no place where I've always been, orbiting the black candle. Do you remember? No, I lie. I said to you, you could be vague without divulging secrets. If you don't trust Derek, then who in this world do you trust? Do you remember what you said to me? No, I lie again. You said if I open myself up to Derek, that means I'll have to be honest about what I do. Why? I say, and my voice sounds more desperate than I want. Why are you doing this? But I already know the answer. Just say the word, he says, and I'll snuff the candle. Your pain will end. No, I say, no. But I'm so fucking tired. It's a small token of our appreciation, General Everhart says to me as he gestures to the bow-wrapped rectangle of what I presume is a bottle of liquor. Norm told us you like your scotch. We're in the Pentagon, in a windowless conference room that reeks of B.O., bad coffee, and long-chain ethers. General Everhart's spangles flash from his uniform as he puts a large hand on my shoulder, smiles, and says, We're not allowed to give gifts, because it might be misconstrued as a bribe, so I'll deny it if asked. He smiles and winks at me. 
But we at the DOD wanted you to know that your hard work has not gone unnoticed. The Suave program has given us an edge on the war on terror that we never would have had without it. He leans over his laptop and presses a few keys, and maps of Afghanistan and Pakistan appear on the giant wall screen. Overlaid on each map are hundreds of little red circles. As you can see, Kim, he says, we've been able to maximize elimination of enemy combatants with a minimum of civilian casualties. And though I've known all along what my work on the Suave program truly means, I've compartmentalized it away like some black ops program in my mind into a dark corner where I seldom look. But here, now, as I stare at the huge screen and its pox of red dots, I can't hide from the truth anymore. Every dot a grave. Soldiers died there, yes, but so did wives and families, and more than I care to consider, children. I nod my way through the meeting, shake hands, and get patted on the back. That night in my D.C. hotel room, I finish the bottle of Lagavulin and pass out in the bathroom with vomit all over my clothes. By Monday, I'm back at work, fielding a thousand emails, writing more precise targeting code, because maybe if I make my autonomous killing machines just a little more accurate, fewer innocents will die. A few weeks later, I get an unexpected raise. That December, General Everhart sends me a Christmas card. You could have left many times, the boy says to me, and the candle is burning low. You could have jumped to the space-based infrared sensing program, and from there you could have jumped to NASA, or Boeing, or ULA, or SpaceX. But you hunkered down in the drone program. Why? The orchids in the glass cylinder have begun to brown. Time is a weight, pulling everything down into emptiness. I don't know, I say. But you do. Stop it, please. Why, Kimberly? Why did you stay? My stomach twists into Gordian knots. Because I loved the challenge. I loved building something from scratch. It was the only thing in my life I could control. And did it make you feel powerful, controlling who lived and who died? Did it make you feel like a god? I do not answer him. I cannot answer him. Do you know who I am, Kimberly? Yes, I think I do. So why, after all our time together, haven't you ever asked me my name? Does not knowing my name make me somehow less real? I can't take it any more. The pain is too much. Snuff it, I say. Snuff the goddamn candle. No, 
he says, not yet. And though I can't see his face, I know he's smiling. The entrance to the Fresh Pond Road Bus Depot and Metropolitan Avenue train yards is a shining example of the lack of forethought and planning that went into many modern public works in the city. Upon entering and leaving the depot, buses drive across a crosswalk that pedestrians must take to reach the subway, and though the danger of collision is high, the designers hadn't the foresight to put in a stoplight. Only a sign warning people to watch for buses, and the driver's questionable caution separates life from death. Only luck has prevented more people from being killed. The depot itself is all metal and piping and rust, and as I stride up to the entrance, I wonder how my team of engineers might have shaped this place if given the chance, how it would be functional and beautiful and safe. But I've devoted my life to other things. The giant garage doors lay open revealing stark orange light inside that shines down onto parked buses. The air reeks of exhaust, gasoline, and engine oil. I expect to be stopped, but I have my spiel ready. I'd like to speak to the depot manager about the danger your exit poses to pedestrians. But no one stops me as I walk, and there's no attendant in the booth. I pass workers smoking in small groups or eating lunch at the wheel, but no one pays me heed. The building is long and huge and many-chambered, and it takes a while to walk to the far end. I exit onto the train yards, where a dozen empty subway cars glimmer in the autumn sun, and I feel suddenly cold and alone. I want someone to stop me. I want to be questioned and arrested for trespassing, where I'll have to explain to the officer that I was only trying to talk with someone about the dangerous exit. But it occurs to me as I walk that this was never the reason I came here. This is a lie I've told myself. The same lie I've been telling myself my whole life, that I'm doing this for others. But it has never been for them. It has only ever been for me. No, I have come here to find out who is making those strange sounds. I pass a line of buses parked beside the concrete wall, the same wall that borders my building and a dozen others. As I gaze up at my second-floor apartment, a black cat with green eyes sitting on the ledge, leers down at me. At the end of the line of buses is another large building. Tracks from the yard sweep into its spacious hangar, and inside, the guts of two trains have been laid open in shiny vivisection. Workers in orange vests and yellow hats congregate by the machines, murmuring and pointing, None notice me as I walk to the very end of the building, where the doorway lies open, waiting for me. It has always been waiting. And as I approach its dark, 
flickering vortex, I surrender to its familiarity. I know its shape and irregular contours, and it knows me and mine. And now I understand why I've come to Richwood and moved into that small apartment when I could have moved to so many other places. Why I've been hearing these strange sounds and why I've been drawn to this spot, to the very end of this hangar. This door is calling me. It has always been calling me. But it is only now, in these last few weeks, that I've let myself hear. Again. I step through. The Third Dynasty of Ur, Girsu Sumeria, 2043 BCE. The Fourteenth Dynasty, Kasut, Egypt, 1689 BCE. The Shang Dynasty, Ao, China, 1199 BCE. The Seleucid Empire, Babylonia, Greece, 167 BCE. The Ottoman Empire, Constantinople, Turkey, 1363 C.E. The Nazi regime, Chemnitz, Germany, 1942 C.E. The Allied Forces, Ridgewood, United States, 1944 C.E. They come like exploding shells, loud and violent, racking my brain, one deadly regime after another. Always they blame war, their unique place in history, for the shedding of their humanity. Then they leap head first into the dark, until the darkness swallows them. Over and over again, they seek the most efficient means of death. And there are always more efficient means waiting. And right here, a stone's throw from my Ridgewood apartment, they built, build, will build this hangar where the doorways to dark places are opened again. Here, hidden in plain sight, in the middle of this bustling city, where no one would ever think to look, sits a gateway to elsewheres and elsewhens. We have to do this, I overhear someone say, or the Nazis will beat us to it. Even though the Germans have already lost 500 scientists and half a city block attempting the same things. Tables are stacked high with books in a hundred languages. The walls are plastered with pages of arcane symbols, and through a window that peers into the same hangar I entered, enter, will enter, some eighty years later, giant machines glimmer and spark and shudder. Beyond them swirls a terrible void, a void beyond time and space. The working men and women have a familiar, focused look in their eyes. 
the same look I saw in my own eyes as I built more efficient killing machines. They know the risks. They know innocent people will die. It doesn't matter to them. It's the thrill above all else that keeps them working. And they are me, and I am them. And though we are spread across six millennia and countless empires, we speak and have always spoken the same language. I write words to kill, and so do they. We just scribe our words on different pages. The visions assault me. I see blood and death and death again. Then everything fades until there is only a small light, a black candle, tall and newly lit, floating in the clear glass cylinder, surrounded by lively orange orchids. Hello, the boy says. This is the first time we meet, and this is the last time. There has only ever been this moment. I have always been here, and I have never been here. Do you know who I am? he asks. I do, I say. You can leave here any time you want, he says. I know, I say, as I float up to the candle and blow it out. Everything goes dark. The air reeks of soot. And I remember childhood birthdays and happy feelings lost forever. In the darkness, a faint navy sheen appears in the shape of a circle. That door doesn't lead where you think it does, he says. I know where it goes. Then will you go, Kimmy? Or will you stay here and play more games? I pause for a moment, for an eternity. Then I step through. There's music, drums and stringed instruments, and clapping and plaintive singing. A small, warm hand takes mine as the sheen resolves. I stand under the canopy of a large tent. Women in brightly colored Pashtun dresses dance and sing, while bearded men in suits and linen robes smile and clap. Sitting at the head of the room, in a veiled green gown shimmering in the candlelight, the bride laughs as she watches them dance. The groom, in a gray linen tunic, smiles broadly beside her. The centerpiece of each table is a white candle in a glass jar. Small, hand-picked flowers float in the water. The room glows with joy. Come, a boy says to me, let's go look at the stars. The boy is ten, dressed in fine linen, a white kufi hanging loosely on his head. He grabs my hand and yanks me outside into the air that smells of charred lamb and tobacco and mountain flowers. Above us, the stars shine sharp and bright, the Milky Way cutting a wide sash across the sky. The boy turns to me and says, Mama, do you think one day 
I'll be married to one as beautiful as Janat? Before I can speak, above the sounds of laughter and music, there comes a faint buzz, like a passing gnat. And as its swift dark shadow tears across the Milky Way, as the first explosions turn joy to terror, just before the next blast will turn me and the boy and all the others here to smoke and ash, I think to myself, there I go, there, over our heads, flies my legacy. That was Matthew Kressel's The Words That Maketh Murder, a Tales to Terrify original, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen McLean is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night, Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 